this uh, sermon, if I, if I could preach a, a sermon over and over and over again, it would be based on this, uh, that I think it's, it's practical. Uh, it's something that I know I need myself, that I've got to preach this to myself uh, every day. And so excited about that. Before I jump into that, though, uh, do you remember these commercials? Right? Like, I'm not really a mechanic, but I, I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night. Right or like a, like a, on the surgeon, a surgeon tailor. Like, wow, hey, are you new here? Like, are you you know you're a really good surgeon? It's like, oh, I'm not really a surgeon. I but I did stay at a Holiday Inn last night. It's a, there's something about humans that we don't like to admit that we're wrong, and we don't like to admit that we have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, there's just that when somebody asks us a question, it's hard for us to say, I don't know. Uh, I remember distinctly. This was high school, my junior year of high school. I went to this camp out in North Carolina called the Wilds. Um, I think it was an acronym for something, but I don't, I don't remember what it was, but out in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains. And, and we did this thing. It was a two-week-long thing called CIT, Camper in Training or, or Counselor in Training. I forget, probably Counselor in Training. And what it was, the first week was like, here's how to be a good counselor. Here's, you know, you're learning some theology and, and counseling techniques. And again, I'm a junior in high school. And then the, the second week of that, though, you become like a little camper spy uh, and so you just become a regular camper, but you're trying to help out your counselor. So you're kind of like tattling on kids for, you know, staying up past bedtime, whatever it was. That was like what we, what we did. It was very weird, uh, which I know. And as I look back at that, at the same time, though, I remember we were on a bus and, and I don't know where we were going or what we were doing, but I'm on a bus and somebody asked me a question uh, about Calvinism. So back then we were starch Arminianists. Uh, meaning uh, this is my free will. Uh, I choose everything that I want to do. Uh, I, I might even potentially be able to lose my salvation. And I didn't even really fully understand my position. Uh, and then people were like, hey, what about this position? Like, oh, hey, Brian, you, you know, you've studied this stuff before. Uh, what do you know? Like, what can you tell us about? I didn't know any, I didn't know what I was talking about. And I remember like throwing all Calvinists under the bus, like they're all wicked people. Uh, they don't believe in Jesus. Like I was just, I just gave an answer that I had no idea what I was talking about, uh, which kind of goes and ties into what we're going to be looking at, specifically a passage, a kind of a mini parable that Jesus teaches. And it's a verse that everybody knows. It's probably, I was actually looking at Google, like what is the most quoted verse of all time? But it, they were all like happy, good verses, not this one. But I think this is one, this one probably takes the cake although we don't necessarily talk about it, and that is the judge not, lest ye be judged. And everyone, for some reason, knows this verse in the old King James English, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Just everybody knows that phrase. And so I've got these little memes up there, right? The little Jesus statue, giving the thumbs up, like, judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Keep on judging, right? You just keep on doing what I told you not to do. Um, or this other, I don't know where this, who said this, but people tell me, Judge not, lest you be judged. And I always tell them, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. Right? That was just pretty, pretty intense. Uh, right? But what does it mean? Like, really, what, what do these verses mean when Jesus says, don't judge? So does that mean I have no authority? I have no right to point out sin in other people? Do I, I have no way? I, so should I not correct my two-year-old when he does something uh, like, hey, you shouldn't do that. And if he learns this first, he can just be like, he can Jesus juke me and just be like, then dad, you can't judge me, right? Only God's my judge, right? Uh, can they, when are we allowed to, to do that? How do we, what does this verse actually mean? And so this week's sermon is entitled, Real Change is Possible, but get the log out first. Real change is possible, 
that every single person in here, every single person online, I just, just take a minute. Think of, you could, you could probably think of a lot of things, but think of the top five sins that you say, man, I've, I've struggled with this thing for a long time. I've always wrestled with this thing. It could be, it could be a, a, a gross infatuation with, with relationships or with money. It could be pride. It could be anger. It could be sexuality or pornography. It could be anything. Real change is possible. And I know there are people, myself included, that we struggle, that we, we kind of go down this path and we have a little bit of victory and then we fail. It's like, oh, what's the point of trying again? I'm just going to fail again and get in this rut. I mean, okay, and we kind of, you know, get, get excited again. Okay, I'm going to get fired up. I want to change. And then we just, it just keeps happening over and over and over. So what is it that Jesus is talking about when he uses this phrase, get the log out? Uh, when he uses that phrase, judge not unless you will be judged. Well, this comes from a pretty popular thing, and a lot of people, whether you're from the church or not, uh, might understand or have heard this idea of the Sermon on the Mount. I have no idea what this picture's from, probably some cheesy Christian film. I don't know what it's from, but it, it worked. It, it served the purpose that Jesus is, is teaching, he's preaching, and he's preaching to a large multitude. So he, he goes outside and he starts teaching, but what's really important about the Sermon on the Mount is actually that he's not addressing everybody. He actually turns to talk to his disciples and everyone else just kind of hears it. And this is why in most of the gospels, the sermon and portions of this sermon are recorded. And so um, that's really vital to understand that and to, and to differentiate on that point that this is not uh, a teaching for the masses. Uh, this is for a small group. Uh, that we could say this, this is for the church. This is for true followers and disciples of Jesus. Because uh, as one comment, I just have two quotes, two small quotes today from a guy named R.T. France and his commentary in Matthew. He says, it is because of this distinctive focus in chapters five through seven and the idea that he's speaking to his disciples in a smaller group within the larger group that I have preferred to call this the, the discourse on discipleship rather than the familiar but non-descriptive title, Sermon on the Mount, a term which too often conveys to modern hearers the concept of a general code of ethics, rather than the specific demands of the kingdom of heaven. That Jesus, and we're not gonna, we're not gonna spend, that'd be a great series, just even just walking through this Sermon on the Mount or this discourse on discipleship, because this is a different way of teaching. That Jesus isn't going to the masses and say, hey, here's a good ethical code for life. You want to live well, then here's what I teach on marriage and divorce. You want to live well, here's what I teach on lust. You want to live well, here's what I teach on fill in the blank. That's not what this is. This is a discourse on discipleship. That people who say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, that he is my master, he is my king, he is my savior, that when he lists all these different things, including the little couple verses that we're going to go over to this morning, that it's not, you need to live like this, that we should be hearing this as we ought to live like this, but not out of manipulation or because, oh yeah, Jesus said we should do this, so we should. That when we truly understand the beauty of the gospel of Jesus and the freedom that it gives us, that we can read this discourse on discipleship and go, man, I want that. I want these things for my life. And yet it's really, really hard the problem is we can't live like this and live out this, these ethics or this discipleship that he teaches without God's help. And so I'm going to talk about this and expand on that in a little bit. And, and honestly, if you've been coming to Lower Town for a while, you, there's, there's probably not a lot I'm going to say this morning. I'm actually reusing old illustrations. You've probably forgotten them. Maybe, maybe not. I don't really care because it's fitting and it's good and it's helpful. 
It's helpful for me. So this doesn't get old to me because I got to constantly beat this into my head, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when any time we're confronted with a sermon like this, there's one of three outcomes. One is we, we go, okay, I, I, I want to do what Jesus says. I, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, but I, I'm struggling with these sins. And so we, we lean towards law and we lean towards, let's put these things in place. Let's, let's make sure that I don't struggle with this thing anymore. Uh, I struggle with road rage. And so I'm going to project something onto my screen that just says, remember Jesus, right? And I just, I'm going to re- rely on that. Well, what happens if the batteries go out? Then all of a sudden I'm relying on what, what's going on, right? So we, uh, nobody's done that, I don't think. Has anybody done that? I don't, I don't think so. It'd be kind of, kind of weird, but um, <laughs> anyways. Uh, I, I've always found that the people that have the worst road rage, the people that have the little fish, Jesus fish, you know, things in the back of their thing, it's like, come on, man. Um, anyways, I'm really bad too. That's why I don't have any <laughs> Jesus paraphernalia in my Jeep. Um, <laughs> anyways, true confessions from your pastor in case you were wondering. Uh, now you either go legalism, I, I'm going to obey the law or license. I can just do whatever I want. There's no way that Jesus, when he says don't lie or don't ever even lust after a woman, there's no way he could have actually meant that. So it's okay if it happens every once in a while. It's okay if I tell a little white lie here every, every once in a while. No, that's license. There's, there's a third way. There's a gospel way that gives us freedom and liberty in the gospel where we rely wholly on Christ and his spirit. Matter of fact, at the end of this Sermon on the Mount, at the end of this discourse on discipleship, as he tells his disciples, he says, unless your righteousness, unless your rightness and your justice, your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were devout. I mean, really devout religious leaders. They were the the pastors of the day, except they had all of the Pentateuch memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. They knew the law, and they wanted, because they they, they knew that God's favor wasn't on Israel. They were under Roman occupation, and so they were forcing their laws and their codes, their morals on all of the Jewish society to say, maybe if we all do these things, then God will show his favor, and he'll liberate us from the Romans. Jesus says, unless you are better, if you are more righteous than even the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. If you're a disciple and you're going, I got to be better than them, it's not possible. And that's the whole point of this, that Jesus is telling all these different things and saying, this isn't possible unless, unless you rely on me and unless you rely on the spirit. So let me go ahead and just read the passage, just a couple of verses here. This is all it is. And I've got a couple other passages that we're going to look at from Romans when we get into a little bit more of the application side of this. So Matthew chapter seven, we're missing a lot uh, as far as this discourse on discipleship, the Sermon on the Mount. But let me just read this. Jesus says this, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that small speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's the passage that we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. So I just want to look at this piece by piece, kind of phrase by phrase. That first one is judge 
not that you be not judged. What kind of judging is this? Well, it, it's, it's not super clear uh, in the language and the Greek and all that, and we can get into all the different nuances of these words. This, it's not super clear, but what, what we know from the context is it's not welcomed. Uh, this is not a good judgment. This is not like I, I, I'm a defendant. I, you know, I, I got a speeding ticket. I plead not guilty and I've got a judge. And that's the kind of, that's not what's happening. This is somebody pointing the finger at somebody and saying, you, you did that thing. I saw a couple of memes as I was kind of, I was trying to find something humorous because, you know, that's what I, I got to like Google humor uh, for my sermons. And, and there was one that was like, you, you got judged Judied or, you know, like, like you, like, because she's very intense. If you've ever, watched, like that, that, it's that kind of thing. Right, that, that this is not a, a good thing. Uh, it's a warning that this judgment can be turned back to the judger, right? So that the judger is, is doing this, this thing and, he's, and it's a warning. Hey, hey, hey ca- caution here. Bef- before you lash out on somebody for whatever it is that they're doing, again, context is really important here. These are Christians, disciples of Jesus, calling out other disciples of Jesus. All right, that, that's the context here. So then are we never to judge? Well, we know that that's not the case. We know that's not the case because if we just flip a few pages over to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus clearly describes if your brother or sister offends you, you go to them. You go to them one-on-one. You say, hey, you did this thing. I'm uncomfortable with this. It hurt me in this way. And if they repent, you've gained your brother or your sister. If they don't repent, then you go and get two or three people and you gather them as witness and say, hey, this you've been doing this thing against me. Let's talk about this. If they repent, you've gained your brother and sister. If they don't repent, then you bring it to the church. And if it goes to the church and they still are unwilling to repent, he says you treat them as somebody who's no longer part of the body of Christ. They're no longer a member of this church. They're no longer able to take communion in our church because they have not been willing to repent of obvious sin. But Jesus says you got to be able to notice that in other people. We've got to be able to go to one another and say, I've seen this thing. This happens to me a lot. And it probably happens to you, really, especially those of you who are married. And I'm not like nagging my wife and she doesn't nag me, but there's little things that we can point out and say, man, you say this, you do this. Why? Let's talk about this. That's Matthew 18. One of the most other, the other, maybe the second verse that's taken out of context, other than this verse is in Matthew 18, when people say, where two or three are gathered uh, in my name, I am there with them. And we use that for a nice, pretty, like, hey, we're going to pray uh, today. And, and where two or three people are gathered together, you know, Jesus is there with them. That's true, but that's not what that verse is talking about. That's actually, that verse is about church discipline and saying, if there are two or three witnesses gathered in my name against somebody, I'm there with these witnesses. So yeah, that's a little, that was a free, free uh, Bible tip there for you. Okay, moving along. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. So think of, think of scales. Um, that's part of our, our symbolism for our judicial system are these, these idea of, of scales, of being in balance. And this particular context, what he's uh, referring to would just be in a marketplace. And we obviously have, have coins and, and, and money that we use to purchase goods. Um, but this would have been a weight. You know, I need, I need 15 grams of that thing. And so it'd be these weights. And so it would say to take a heavier weight for one person to measure something and then taking a lighter weight and measuring it uh, for, for another person. And so this would be the idea of, of like my, my son, Henry, uh, when, when he's beating up his little brother, Jack, and then Jack finally loses it and hits Henry in the face. And he's like, hey, 
he just did this to me. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. Like, what do you expect, right? You're using a different judgment for yourself, Henry, than you are for your brother, Jack, right? That's what Jesus is warning. Last quote here that I have from R.T. France is this. The critic who is blind to his or her own failings is living in a make-believe world where one can exempt oneself from standards which others are expected to conform to. Society will not tolerate that and still less can, disciple, can, can a disciple community afford to operate by such double standards. It is a recipe for the breakdown of relationships. That if I am, 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 am interacting with certain people differently, then, then it's a double standard. And people see that, people recognize that. And people, even society, even people outside the church, that if we're handling things differently with one another, it's a recipe for a breakdown in relationships. So then he goes on and he says, he says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And this is, it's, this is, a, this is technically a parable. We talked about what parables are a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to necessarily dig into that. But what is, a, is he's sharing this little, this little story, this hypothetical story that has one major meaning, which is usually, and it is in this case, what is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is like two brothers, and this is actually, in this context, actual brothers, two carpenters in a workshop, and they're working. This is what it's like. And one brother is, is you know, planing some wood in a tiny little, tiny little speck of wood. Uh, Zach, you work a lot with wood. You ever had dust in your eyes before when you're working with wood? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, don't you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? And so a little piece of dust gets in your eye, and yet, what the, and this is this, it's, it's, purposefully ridiculous, this analogy, because Jesus is saying, you've got someone planting some wood and a tiny little, tiny little speck is in his eye, but then the beam that's holding up the roof somehow falls and hits you in the eye. And this huge thing is hanging out of your eye. And you go, hey man, hey bro, let me get that. You got something in your eye, right? That, that's the ridiculous thing. And Jesus does this. Like when he says it's easier for a camel, like an actual camel to enter through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. That's ridiculous, right? He's making this huge uh, exaggeration on purpose to make a point, and that's exactly what he's doing here in this parable. It sounds absolutely ridiculous. And so the thing is, when we look at this, it's not wrong to notice that something's wrong with somebody. Looked at that and did Matthew 18, right? It's not even wrong to even try to help them with something that they might be doing wrong or their, their failings. But if I have a greater failure, I am in no position to say anything. Again, that illustration with Henry and Jack. Henry's in no position to tattle. Now, sometimes I do. Like, hey, he's playing with, you know, a broken glass that he just shattered on the floor. Yeah, tell me about that, please. Uh, but yet, it's like, just be, he can't do that, and then he can't. That's not how that operates, not how that works. And again, this is just deliberately ridiculous. And the whole point of this is that when he says, how, how can you, uh, let, how can you uh, let me take out the speck of your own eye when there is a log in your own? And he says, you Hypocrite. That's the emphasis of this passage. This passage is not about don't judge others. This is about hypocrisy. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Hypocrites. The thing with hypocrites is that, and I think what Jesus, his point he's trying to make here, is they're aware they're aware of their wrongdoing. 
right? In order to be a hypocrite, this isn't just I'm blindly doing something. I'm going down a one-way street and I don't even know it's a one-way street. I'm not being a hypocrite in my driving abilities or, or obeying the rules of the road. I don't even know. I didn't know. It's for me to say, wow, I see, do not enter one-way street. Eh, who cares? That's what this is talking about. A hypocrite is somebody who knows something is wrong in their own heart, in their own life, and they go, I'm going to go after that thing in you, even though I know this is, in, is true of me. First, take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of others. They're aware, yet they conceal it. They conceal it. And so criticism isn't the judging. It's about not doing so to themselves first. Jesus isn't saying, don't, don't judge other people. He's saying, just make sure you, you got yourself in check first. And this is one of those passages, one of those sermons that, that I know for myself, that there might be like, man, I, I, hope, I hope so-and-so is here. I hope so-and-so is watching. But that, that's what Jesus is talking about. I need this for me. I'm not thinking of anybody other than just the sheep and myself as a sheep of the great under shepherd of saying, how am I a hypocrite? What is it in my life that I need to evaluate first? That I, that's some sin that I need to kill in order then to be able to help other people kill their sin. So then he ends it with this last little phrase. It's kind of enigmatic. But he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. There's a lot of debate on why they use dogs and pigs. And I'm not even going to get into all that. I don't think it's really that important. It's just kind of the main thing. Don't, don't give them something that's holy. Don't throw your pearls before the pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is what he's saying is that when we do this, let's do this appropriately. Examine your own heart. But then even people, I think especially and I, what I think is happening here in this verse is saying, when I try to confront somebody, let's just take, let's, let's take adultery, for example. Adultery, I believe, is, is wrong. It's one of the Big Ten Commandments. And yet, I think what's happening here is saying, it's one thing to do this in the church. That if one of my members of my church is committing adultery, I'm going to go have a conversation with them. That's a Matthew 18 thing. But knowing I better not be a hypocrite, I better not be having a, an affair, and then go to try to confront somebody else on their affair, right? That's what this passage is about. So Matthew 18, though, says, no, well, let's do that so we can win our brothers and sisters back. What this verse is saying is, let's not go beyond the walls of this church and say, hey, let's make it illegal to commit adultery. Now, we could argue that all day. We live in a free country. We live, we live in a free country, and so I don't need to necessarily go out and try to tell them we, we have laws that we can put into place. That's a whole other conversation. I'm not trying to even open that can of worms. All I'm saying is let's just be cautious with this. Do this appropriately. It takes discernment and also judging. I have to judge. Should I actually address this to somebody? Should I actually warn them about these things? Don't prejudge. Don't be like minority report, like, oh, they're, they're a dog. They're a pig. I'm not even going to address this thing with them. Let's not go there. And at the same time, don't force it on those who simply don't want it. And again, the context here, we're talking about brothers and sisters within the church. This is discipling. This is disciple ship. So when we think about this, when, when somebody comes up with that verse again, you don't need to, don't correct their theology right off the bat or anything like that. But we're in a position to confront one another on our own sins. And this has happened to me this week. And I'm thankful for that. It helps me examine my own heart, examine myself and repent of that. So we are to judge, but with caution. And we are to examine our own hearts first. We are to use discernment when, how, and who we are to point error out too. And so this is a message on how to get the beam out of your own eye. 
not how to confront one another's sins. You understand? That's what Jesus is doing here. And again, he's going to address that. How do we confront one another in Matthew 18? That's not, that's not what he's doing here. He's saying, let's get the log out of our eye. Let's get this huge beam out of my eye so then I can be more like Christ and so that I can easily, more easily point people to Christ. An acronym that Steve Treichler came up with. So if you don't know Steve, he's the lead, sorry, he's the senior pastor of Hope Community Church. Hope Community Church has three locations. There's Hope Community Church downtown, and Pastor Core is the lead pastor there. There's Hope Community Church Columbia Heights. Uh, pastor Drew Zolke is the lead pastor there. And there's Hope Community Church Lower Town. I'm the lead pastor here. But Steve is the big dog. Uh, he's, he's the boss, right? He's the senior pastor. And uh, he came up with this acronym, uh, I don't know when, maybe five, five six years ago. And it, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's not the greatest acronym, but uh, it works. Uh, and it's GUPA, <laughs> okay? GUPA. All right, so this is from, from Steve. And, uh, and, and listen, there's nothing that, that is in this uh, acronym that's anything different from what we've heard before or different from what I've taught from this pulpit or anybody else has taught from uh, a pulpit at Hope Community Church. I think it just helps it get a little bit more succinct and maybe help, help remember this uh, aspect of what it means to get the log out of our eye. How do we fight sin? That real change is possible. How do we do this? So the first letter here is gospel centrality. And again, I've said this a million times, and I hope that the gospel is always the answer. The gospel should always be the answer. The gospel should always be the answer. And what happens is people want to jump to the P, which we'll get to, but we got to start with the gospel. I want to read Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11. I'm not going to make a lot of commentary on this, but he says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is saying here, he's talking to Christians, people who have believed in Christ, where we are bought by the blood of Jesus and grace is now there. I, all of my sins, past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. I'm completely justified by Christ. So should we just continue and can we just do whatever we want? Lean into that license, licentiousness, and then, and then we can just do what we want because Jesus already died for my sins. He says, by no means. King James says, God forbid. It's as strong as a possible no that, that, that you could say in the Greek, moiganito. It's just, that's ridiculous. No, by no means. And this is his reason for it. Could, could we, I mean, why can't we sin if we've already been forgiven? Here's why. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of their father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I love baptism because of this and the symbolism that it does. And we've got it like the world's largest baptismal back here. Um, I don't know uh, why they made it a swimming pool, but they did. They must have just been dunking people like crazy back in the day. I'm not really sure. But what is the symbolism here? That I have died with Christ and I have been raised to walk in the newness of life. And it's the symbol of baptism. If you've never been baptized, I'd love to talk to you about that. This idea that this is the symbol. Of, we've been baptized in Christ. I've died to my flesh and to my sin, and I've been raised to walk again from the dead by the glory of the Father that we too might walk in the newness of life. How? How in the world do we kill sin? How do we fight sin? How do we actually have change in our lives by recognizing and realizing I am no longer dead in my trespasses and sins. I have been raised to walk in the newness of life. 
For if, I, for if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order, order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we who have died with Christ and we believe that we also will live with him, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That right there is the freeing power of the gospel. That is liberty. That is freedom. I don't have to worry about obeying the laws and I don't have to worry about slipping into licentiousness and just doing what I want. There's liberty and freedom in Christ. Why? Because he's my master, that he has killed my sin. And yet I so easily and quickly am tempted to go back to that. The way that C.S. Lewis puts it, that we are, we've been offered a holiday in the sea, right? A vacation by the sea. And yet we go back to the slums and make mud pies. Why do because that's just what we do. We sing it all the time. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to leave the God and take my eyes off the one who has died for my sins. If he's killed it and I've been buried and baptized in that with him and I've been raised to walk in newness in life, why do I still sin? I've used this analogy before a couple years ago, I remember. Uh, this is uh, West Berlin and East Berlin. I'm not gonna get into the history of this too much. I remember though, Will Craig was sitting right there and I, was, I made a joke about, he was, he was probably uh, at the negotiating tables with Gorbachev, uh, which I wouldn't be surprised. He never corrected me that, he was, wrong, that I was wrong in that statement. Uh, so who, who knows, that could, that could have been the case. But what happens? All right, and this is the analogy I use. I just used this in my small group not that long ago, so forgive me, small groupers. Um, but here's what happens, right? Here's the analogy. You're in East Berlin. You're under, you're under communist Russia, the USSR. And there's a, there's a guard tower that's on that side. And he's got a machine gun and he's got it. And every day you're walking to your factory, you're walking by this tower. And every single day that guard looks at you and says, get down on the ground or I'm going to shoot. What do you do? You get down on the ground or he's going to shoot. Every single day. Well, one night, or as you're walking back from, from work, from the factory, some wealthy, benevolent individual from West Berlin digs a tunnel. And as you're walking by, he snatches you and he pulls you under that tunnel over into West Berlin. Now, this is all analogies break down, but let's just imagine that factory goes over West Andes, Berlin. So the next day, you're walking back up to that factory, but now you're on West Berlin. And that same guard recognizes you, sees you, and says, get down or I'll shoot. Do you have to get down? No. You've been set free, but yet our bodies, our systems, our, 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 our mental capacity, our hearts, our souls, and its deepest thing that is tainted by sin. Here's our old master of, of sin in the flesh. Say, get down, and we go, okay. We've been set free from that. That every time we sin, we choose it. We choose to sin. We choose to obey the old master rather than obey the new master and follow his discourse on discipleship that now I get to live this way. I get to be free. That's the gospel. We've been set free. I don't have to sin. I choose to. That's the gospel. So when people, people confront me on my sin, I don't need to get defensive about it. Now it's normally my gut reaction. Whoa, 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 what about, what about you? Get the beam out of your eye first. Well, that's normally my reaction. 
I don't say it like that, but maybe I have before. I get defensive, but when I realize, no, Jesus already paid for me. I'm already justified. It's as if I've never sinned. I don't need to be ashamed. I don't need to feel guilty. I can know that that sin can be repented of, that it is forgiven because I have a new master. That's the gospel. And that's what every time you want to fight sin, that's how you fight sin. Just there? No. Just getting started. But I'm going to go through these faster because no time is getting short. You is utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. I don't think you're supposed to have full sentences in an acronym, but that's why this is, you know, not the greatest, but utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. Skipping up to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11 says this, You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You're in East Berlin. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This isn't a, a weird Gnosticism where, where flesh is bad and spiritual things are good. It's, he's using this as, as a thing for sin. He's using this idea of body and flesh as bad, not my physical body's bad. Isn't that, that's, you're, but you're still here. You still have this old nature. You still have this old master screaming at you, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him, these are, these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life in your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Your mortal, sinful things that we struggle with. He's saying, the Spirit wants to give you life. The way I grew up, we never talked about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was, was, was not a, just, I don't know, it was just a forbidden topic for some reason. It was the third member of the Trinity. That much I knew. But, oh, man, you start talking about the Holy Spirit, and everything's got a little hocus-pocus, ooga-booga, you know, around here, right? That's, that's not... Listen, I was taught an anemic gospel. I was taught a weakened gospel because I didn't know how to fight sin because I always jumped to the P. I always jumped to this aspect of this pathway, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But this is the power. I believe the gospel. This is my position. I am in right standing with God. I am in West Berlin. He is my new master. But this old master keeps screaming at me and I keep wanting to, to, to fall down on my face in front of that one. But what is my power? What is my motivation? It's the spirit. And we got to rely on the spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that enables me and gives me power to fight that sin and to fight that old master and say, no, you got nothing on me anymore. And all too often, what happened is I relied on my flesh to beat the flesh. I relied on my flesh to battle my flesh. And what happens is we so quickly want to jump to the pathway. I'm struggling with this sin, right? Come on, doctor, give me a, give me a vaccine. Give me a, I mean, that's a little too soon. Come on, doctor, give me, a, give me something to help me with this, with this disease that I'm struggling with. Put the cast on my arm that's broken right now. I need help in this way. And we don't go to the gospel and we don't depend on the Holy Spirit. And so when we jump to the pathway, we immediately either go directly to legalism or we go to license. I got law that I got to lean on to help fix this thing. Or man, I can't, it's impossible. I can't do that. So just forget it. I'm just going to live under grace and, and disappoint my God. I thought about, I could, I could have easily just put up a list of countless sins up here and just said, okay, how, 
right? But everyone's different. The things that I struggle with are probably not the things you struggle with. And I know, right, again, a lot of you guys are in my small group, so I know what you guys struggle with. They're not the things that I struggle with. What's the path? The path is always the gospel, that the gospel is the answer, dependence, utter dependence on the Holy Spirit for that power. And then we can start making a path. Then we can start making steps. Then we can start putting boundaries if needed. We can take certain temptations away if needed, but we should remain on that path. It's, uh, or that path. It's, it's that idea of uh, uh, Christopher Walken, right? And he's banging and he's saying, I need more, I need more cowbell. Right? We need more cowbell, but we don't need more cowbell. We need more gospel. We need more Jesus. That's what we need. And when we have that, that's when we can start walking on the path. We've talked, we, we go through the door of the gospel. Now it's walking the path of the gospel. Legalism, subject again to a yoke of slavery, of law, of bondage, which again, I, you know my story. A lot of you know my story. That's what I grew up in. Well, you, you struggle with lust. Next time you're, you're, you think you're going to lust, you're tempted with lust, go to, literally, that's what I was told, go take a lap around the dorm. So you're telling me I got to rely on my physical body to win a victory over temptation with my physical body. See how that doesn't work? You see how that might work once? <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, man, I, I don't, right? And it's just this constant battle of legalism. And then when people don't do these things, then we look down on them for not having these high standards that I have. Or we go to the license. And, and just true, true story with myself, um, this was even just recently, because I was so upset with that, I swung the pendulum over here, and I remember I was actually pursuing an ordination with the EFCA, which were, were part of their denomination. And they used to. The, the, since then, the, 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 the uh, thing has changed. They had a really strong position on end times theology of like when Jesus is going to come back and how he's going to come back. And they're like, if you want to be ordained, you have to believe this. And I was like, nah, man, I did all that. I'm sick of people telling me what I got to do. So, so if that's going to be you, nah, I don't want to be ordained with you guys. And I did now, they've changed that, so I would not have anything against my conscience to go back to that. But I swung it a little too hard. Right? You can't tell me what to do. Right? I'm free. And yes, I am free, but I, I used it as an opportunity for the flesh to pursue my own gratification. And yet what we need to and where we should be is this idea of liberty. We've been called to freedom. I say it almost every week. Sometimes I forget, but usually you've been set free to be free. You have been set free to be free. So don't don't listen to that old master of legalism, license, and slavery. The last point here of this is accountability. Gospel centrality, utter dependence on the Holy Spirit, and then we can start talking about a path. And that path might look like uh, certain blockers on your computer. It might look like uh, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't drink alcohol. Maybe it could be, could be a lot of different things, right? But that's not the path. That's just a way to help me really fully embrace the gospel. And at some point, these things, they're, they're like a crutch. If you've ever been on crutches before, right? And, and this used to, I used to get injured all the time in high school and, and it's high school and people are jerks. And so when you're leaning a crutch and, the, and your buddies kind of do the old, I'm going to kick it out from underneath you thing, right? How much weight am I putting on that? And if that crutch gets moved out of the way, let's say that whatever legalism, the law that I've put in my life, that's gets, if that gets kicked away and I fall flat in my face and fall down a pit of sin again, then I'm not relying on the spirit. I am not focused on the gospel. But if that crutch gets kicked away and I'm able to go, wow, hey, I'm, I'm okay here. I didn't, I didn't jump right back into sin on one way or the other. That's where we ought to be. And that pathway can look very differently for a lot of different people, whatever the struggle is. But the last thing is accountability. Obviously, the number one way we do this is in small groups at Hope. Maybe not the number one way, but it's a way. 
Uh, It's within personal relationships. I have accountability partners and people that I talk with on a regular basis outside of the church. Um, And that's a good thing, not necessarily non-believers, but people who just aren't part of Hope Community Church. I have other pastors that I talk with on a regular basis that we keep one another accountable. Uh, And that's a good thing uh, to help one another and talk with one another and, and, and encourage one another in that. There's not some perfect thing. I remember in high school and in college, we had this accountability thing. We'd, we'd go through this list of questions and how you doing this week on this thing that you mentioned and how you doing this. And, that's, and I think that can be helpful. But the last question was always, did, at any point uh, in today's accountability thing, did you lie to me? It's like, well, you know they can lie about that answer too, right? So it, it, accountability only goes so far as much as the person is willing to take the log out of their own eye. But this helps. But if I only rely on the pathway and this thing that I need to be doing, I need to read this book, I need to watch this, I need to listen to this podcast, I need to help my, my friend, and they need to help me, and they need to call me every day and ask me how I'm doing on this thing. If that's what I'm relying on, holy cow, we're in a world of hurt. And that's how we get into this pattern of repetition and sins that just go over and over and over. When we're centered on the gospel, when we depend on the power of the gospel, man, it is liberating. And that's when we can get on the pathway and have accountability. And so again, this is one of those sermons where I'm not thinking of anybody. I don't want you to be thinking of anybody. I want you to think about yourself. Are you quick to judge when you need to repent first? And then finally, <laughs> there's another way to put this. Do you have the gupa? Right? Do you, is, is this part of, of who you are? The gospel, utter reliance on the spirit? Is there a pathway? Do I, do I have a way out of this? Am I just floundering by myself? I say this a lot from the pulpit. Your relationship with Christ is a personal relationship, but it was never meant to be private. Your relationship with Christ was never meant to be private. It's personal, yes. So let's do that together. And we're going to do that in a minute as we have communion. Um, And we're going to have communion. And I know, so if you're able to grab one when you came in, uh, if you didn't, feel free to go grab one. If you're at home, uh, again, if you're just a follower of Jesus, if you can look at that gupa and say, yeah, I want that. I want to rely on, the, on, on, on Jesus. I, I, need, I need more Jesus cowbell in my life because I love him. I've bent the knee to King Jesus. And I want to rely. I, I, I like to think that I do rely on the spirit, but not as much as I, as I should. And again, this, this sermon shouldn't be convicting in the sense of, man, I just feel beat up because I'm not doing this. I'm hoping this should be encouraging and liberating. This is freedom. We should want to. We should get to. Uh, have these true in our life. And so we're going to have communion in just a moment. And there's nothing magical about communion, but it's simply a way to remember this aspect of the gospel. It's to remember the broken body that's represented by a little wafer. It's represented by the juice that represents, represents the blood of Christ that was spilt out for my sins. And to remember what Christ did for me. And while remembering, we're able to repent of sins. And maybe you just need to sit there and pull the log. And maybe it's multiple logs out of your own eyes and repent and say, I know I'm in a right standing with you, Jesus, because of what you've already done for me. That's the gospel. Give me your spirit. Let your spirit enable me and empower me to fight that sin. And maybe you need to talk to people. Maybe we need to figure out a path. Maybe we need to figure out, maybe it's counseling. Maybe it's accountability further, whatever that may be. But maybe what is it in your own heart, your own life that you just need to say, I need to repent of this thing. And as we're partaking these elements, just to remember what Christ did for us, so I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. I'm going to close in prayer. And then we will sing a couple songs, two songs together. And then we will close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that you can never have too much Jesus. I thank you that you can never hear about the gospel too much. 
that it is what I need over and over and over because I am constantly thinking that I'm still in East Berlin. That I wake up in the morning and I go, no, my, my flesh is my master. I don't feel free. And yet, God, we have been set free. That those of us who have called, that you have put us into your hand, you said that no one can pluck us out of your hand. Nobody. So God, would you help us to believe our position now in West Berlin, that we've been set free, that you are our master, and that is freedom and life and power of the Holy Spirit to help us thwart the enemy when those temptations come. Help us to serve one another well in these areas when it comes to the pathway and accountability. And would your spirit even move now just to help us in whatever confessions that needs, that needs to happen. And just remember that that same spirit, that spirit who raised your son from the dead is the exact same spirit who lives in me and who is enabling me to fight my sin and my flesh. We pray all these things in your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.